All right, well, let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll dive in. We're a couple minutes after, so we'll jump right in. All right, let's pray. Father, we just thank you for another day we can gather, we can learn, hear, learn and hear from your word. Uh, we just pray that you bless our time today as we, uh, especially today, look towards uh, next week and the celebration of Christ's coming and what that signifies, not just his birth, but his life, his, his death, his resurrection for us. Um, so just help us to reflect upon these things today. Um, help us in our study of Genesis just to have wisdom and insight uh, to stand uh, up for truth and uh, just the foundations that you've laid of, of life, of marriage, as we're going to look at today. Um, so many foundational things, Lord. May we uh, stand firm on those in a world that denies them, that seeks to lay a different foundation that's based on man and based on um, our, our wisdom instead of the wisdom you've revealed to us. So, God, we just pray you bless our time. We pray for the classes downstairs as well. You bless uh, their conversations, their study of your word. Would you be with our service uh, and our, our time of worship through singing and worship through hearing from your word. Uh, we pray for Children's Church this morning as well, that you just bless uh, that and help the kids to learn in that setting. And for our ministries tonight, youth group and kids club, and um, even conversations we may get to have this afternoon or ministry we get to do. God, we just lift the, the day up to you. We pray that you be magnified in everything that we do today. Uh, may we seek you first and seek to glorify you in all that we do. So God, we lift the day up to you and pray that you be glorified in our midst. And then we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we are going to, Lord willing, wrap up Genesis chapter 2 this morning, um, kind of covering some bigger sections as we move along. Uh, and so we, in, in this chapter, of course, it started with the seventh day, but we talked about how really the first three verses of chapter two should really be at the conclusion of chapter one, and chapter, or verse four is really where you see a shift in focus, and we've talked about the, a little more detail of the creation of man uh, with Adam. Uh, chapter one just says that man was made in his image, male and female, and here we get more detail. We, we see the, uh, as we looked at last week, the setting where God places him. There in the garden, in that uh, area of Eden, just the, the blessings that were there, the trees that were there that he could partake of, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that was the one restriction he had. And so we come to verse 18, and now we see a little more specifically the creation of woman. So all this is taking place on day six. Um, however, as we talked about, it's not necessarily things that are mentioned or happening chronologically, um, but, but the events that are taking place are taking place on day six as man is created okay so we're looking at day six in more detail and we come here let me just go ahead and read uh all these verses verse 18 down through the end of the chapter and then we'll walk back through them uh kind of a phrase or an idea at a time it says then the lord god said it is not good that the man should be alone i will make him a helper fit for him now out of the ground the lord god had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman 
and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Okay, so we notice throughout chapter 1, as God would create and as a day would conclude, what was that phrase we saw as God looked upon his creation? What did he proclaim? It is good, right? It is good, it is good. And then the completion of all of it, it is very good. Uh, but here in chapter 2, we see the first time where God looks at his creation says it is not good. Okay, Does that mean that it's evil? Not necessarily that it's evil, just that it's incomplete. right? God's not done on this day 6 of creation, so he looks and sees that what is not good is that the man should be alone. And so he recognizes this lack that um, Adam's not meant to and mankind, I think in general, is not meant to be left in isolation. Um, but God desires community, right? So we're going to see just that development of, of relationship, of community, um, as, as God begins to create. So it's not good that man should be alone. Uh, we saw chapter 1 when God creates animals and when God creates mankind in the general sense. His, his uh, mission for them is to go out and to multiply, to fill the earth, right? And so we see this idea of community, of fruitfulness, of filling the earth. And so... Uh, we can apply this today that we're not meant as individuals to live in isolation, right? If we ever find someone that's a hermit or someone that's, you know, just isolated, it's not a healthy thing. We need community. We need one another. We need relationships. And so uh, we see this idea from the very beginning. So God determines uh, it's not good that man should be alone. So God says, I will make him a helper fit for him. Anyone know what is this idea of a helper that's fit for him? she to be just a servant a companion i think that's a great word companion a uh, a support an aid a partner uh, is the picture someone that corresponds to him that's suitable for him um, it's not meant to be a derogatory term in any way in fact throughout the old testament this idea of helper is many times attributed to god a very famous passage psalm 121 1 through 2 I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Moses many times looked to God as his help, the one that helped them out of Egypt. So this isn't any kind of derogatory term. It's just meant to be a, a description of the woman being that, that partner, that help, that aid, that complement to him. And we know today, relationally, uh, men and women are very different, right? We're wired differently. Um, we have different um, abilities, um, different giftings many times. And so in what ways do men and women complement one another? Or are they different in a way that helps maybe the deficiencies of the other? Okay, absolutely. Got to have some difference there for sure. What else? What other ways do they complement one another, help one another? Okay. Right. Yeah, in a general sense, men are typically bigger, stronger. And why is that? 
They're, they're meant to be the protector of the home, right? They're meant to be the one um, that's that leader, that protector in the home, okay? Not to say every man is stronger than every woman, right? But just in a general sense, God's designed it that way. What else? What other ways do men and women complement one another? Okay, yeah, you typically more gentle, more motherly, um, caring in that way, right? Generalizations, but God's designed men and women to be different and to be distinct and to be suitable for one another, to complement one another, to make up for uh, one another's weaknesses uh, in the home and that kind of thing, okay? So we see that from the onset. God is considering, okay, a helper that's going to be suitable for him, not just cloning him and making another one of him that's going to help, but a, a different suitable partner, okay? And so we come to verse 19. So God determines it's not good man to be alone. I'm going to make him a helper. And then verse 19 says, Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Okay, And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. So we come to verse 19, and uh, God gives Adam his first task, to name the animals. Now, a lot of people will look at these verses. We talked about this a little bit earlier in chapter 2. They'll say, well, see, here is a different creation account than chapter 1 because chapter 1 says that the birds were created on what day? Birds and fish, you remember? Day 5. And then all the land animals and man were made on day 6. And they'll say, especially other versions other than the ESV, They'll say, well, see, this says God's creating birds and land animals all on the same day. But is that really what this verse is saying? How would you respond to someone that maybe said, look, here God's creating birds on day, day six. How would you respond? I think the ESV does a good job of, of uh, translating this. Other versions, not as much. There's a key word in there, verse 19. Okay, that's a past tense word. Another one, though, is uh, what I'm thinking of. Does it say that now God made? Had made, had formed, right? So it's past tense. Now, again, the perspective of chapter 2 is the man and things in creation relating to him. And so all it's saying is, now God had made the... He had, of course, made the animals prior to man, and he had made the birds, and now he's bringing them to the man to name them, okay? So it's just simply saying God had done this, and now he brings these animals to Adam to name them. Uh, others who question God's word would say, well, it's impossible, because all, all this happens, it would seem, in day six. That's when God made mankind, and it mentions male and female. So it seems all this has taken place within the window of a 24-hour day, as we talked about. In Genesis 1. And so some would look at this and say it's impossible for Adam to name every creature uh, in a day's time. This would take a, a long time. Um, any, any ideas how you might respond to that? I like to get you thinking before I... Okay, yep. Right, and of course we know today there's, when we think of kinds, it's not necessarily species, but it's more probably family type. So today you wouldn't have, today you have a horse, a zebra, a donkey, a mule, all these variations, and in this day it would have just been, there's a horse kind, 
right? Or cat kind or dog kind, right? So there would have been fewer kinds of animals because here in the beginning, there's just one set of each one. Um, so that limits the number of thinking about all the animals. Uh, any other thoughts? The other thing is that it doesn't say here that Adam names every single animal on the planet, right? There's actually three categories that it mentions specifically. Um, that when it comes to verse 20, the man gave uh, names to all livestock. Okay, so these are uh, animals, as we talked about, that would have been used to, you know, help um, with crops and things you could domesticate, right? So livestock. Birds of the air or birds of the heavens, okay? So he's naming different ver- birds. And then every beast of the field. Um, so this almost seems to be a subcategory. We talked about in chapter 1, God created the beast, and that was non-domesticated animals. But this seems to be more specifically beasts of the field, ones that were maybe in the vicinity of the garden, in the vicinity of, of that Eden area. Not every single wild animal there is. In another big group of animals that aren't mentioned here are fish, right? You think about the oceans and how much, how much variation of life is there. Adam's not given the task there. And it could be that Adam's only given the task of naming the animals in the garden or in and around the garden um, at that time. And so when you think about it, even if there were thousands of animals, if Adam, I saw one estimate, if he took six seconds to name an animal and write it down, he could name, I think, 3,000 different animals in a span of five hours, okay? So it's not unfeasible uh, for Adam to do this task. And again, we don't know how many animals there were given to him to name them. But why, why is it that God gives Adam this task of naming these animals? What's the purpose? Okay, absolutely. We, we talked about in chapter 1, part of the idea of naming is to show that you have dominion over something, right? God names the sun, moon, and stars. God gives names to things. Here, there's an aspect of Adam has dominion over these animals, and so he's the one that has the right to name them. But absolutely, I think part of this is to demonstrate to Adam, to show him that he's lacking, to show him his design of having pairs. Um, I thought it was interesting, because we don't know at this point. God's looked at creation and he said it's not good for man to be alone. But we don't know, did Adam feel this way? Was Adam lonely at this time? And so God may be using this naming of the animals to show him his need. Um, I like the way R. Kent Hughes put it. He said, to prepare the needy bachelor, God initiated an awareness program. So Adam very quickly becomes aware of his need as he sees these animals come. And every animal has a pair, a corresponding mate. And he keeps looking at them, looking at them. None of them correspond to him. He doesn't have a mate. And so he realizes that he, and it says that in in the end of verse 20, uh, for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So he realizes, it seems, his need, his loneliness. He realizes God's designed to have these pairs together. And so uh, then God, of course, after showing him his need, uh, fills this need, creates uh, this woman uh, to fulfill this need and to create this perfect match. So verse 21 uh, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Okay, so God sets out to make this not good situation good, complete, 
by creating a perfect partner, perfect helper, mate that's suitable for Adam. Um, why do you think God caused Adam to go into a deep sleep? Is this the first case of anesthesia? So he wouldn't feel pain? Not necessarily. And, and, and again, we think this is prior to the fall, so there probably wasn't pain in that, that sort of thing. I think this was just to uh, keep the creation of woman a mystery, something that only God knew to uh, almost wait till that revealing moment when the woman's presented to him. And so God calls him to fall in a deep sleep. It's interesting, this is the same phrase used when Abram uh, goes into a deep sleep when God's making the covenant with him and he splits the animal parts. And typically, you'd walk through, both parties would walk through the two sides of the animal to signify they were making a covenant to death. And in that moment, God caused Abram to fall asleep and he alone walked through the animal part showing that this covenant was fully dependent upon him. So that's the same phrase here of, of being asleep. So almost a picture of God's making a covenant in uh, creating this woman that they would be, they would have this perfect marriage. And so I thought that was kind of interesting. So um, it says there that God took a rib. Any, anybody have a different translation that has a different word than rib? Anybody got the McDonald's version, McRib? No? I did that one for you, Roger. Anybody besides rib? Okay, so we we constantly think of this as rib, and that's many times how it's translated, but really this word, when it's translated elsewhere in the Old Testament, means side, okay? So we could look at it as not just maybe specifically the, the rib, like a bone, but it seems, as Adam professes, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, that it's more than just a bone, it's flesh, it's blood, it's bone, it's part of his side that God takes, that God then closes that flesh back up and then uses that to form the woman. So why, why did God create woman from Adam's side and not in the same manner that he had created the animals and created Adam out of dirt? Why not just say, all right, Adam, you have a need. I've done this before. Let me take some dirt and mold, mold you a woman. There you go. What, what's the significance of using Adam's side? Okay. Yeah, I think it's to demonstrate that the unity between the man and woman that's supposed to exist, right? That they're from the same flesh, that she's not just another creation. She's not just another, you know, animal that he's to have dominion over right, to dominate her as, as he would the animals, um, but to show that intimacy. There's a famous quote from Matthew Henry where um, he says that she was not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near to his heart to be beloved. So I thought that was an interesting quote. There's several commentators that pull that quote out. It's a pretty famous quote in regards to the woman being created. So there's this level of intimacy that, and, and we see that when Adam finally sees her, is that his profession is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Like we're connected. You, you're, you're from me. You're made from the same material I am. And so you see this idea of that connection between them. And so we see the, the equality of men and women. They're both image bearers, as we saw in chapter one. They're connected. But that doesn't mean, as we're going to see even in chapter 3, and even, I think, prior to the fall, 
that there are different roles that God has. There's different design for men and women. There's equality, but there's also a complementary view of men and women as they work together. And I think Adam and Eve would have had that balance in perfect harmony. He would not have, before the fall, domineered her. She would not have sought to usurp him. They would have worked in perfect harmony together in the roles that God had for them. And so this passage, I think, dispels both misogyny and feminism, right? When you look at the foundation of God's word, you see this original creation that really dispels both of those, I think. So after woman's created, uh, we see just this beautiful picture in verse um, 22. It says, And the rib that the Lord God made, uh, or that God had taken from man, he made into a woman and then brought her to the man. So just picture this scene of God bring, he's created this woman, Adam's realized his loneliness, he awakes from this deep sleep, and then God brings the woman to the man. It's almost a picture of a marriage day, right? And if you're married, married man, you can probably remember that moment where you saw your bride on, on that wedding day. I remember that time seeing my wife for the first time in her dress, knowing this was our day, and just the emotion that wells up inside of you. But imagine this is the first time Adam's seen his wife altogether, right? Seen even a woman altogether. And so we see this amazing scene of almost like a father leading his bride to the groom, right? God is taking this woman and presenting her to the man. And then we see his words in verse 23. This is at last, and these are the first recorded words of Adam. He named the animals prior, but we don't have any record of his speech. So the first words of man are really a, a poem celebrating uh, God's creation and this woman. This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And so just like in English, man and woman, right, are there together. In Hebrew, the word for man is ish, and the word for woman is uh, isha, so out of man. So English has done a good job of retaining that idea of woman is taken out of man, okay? And so we see this, this profession of uh, God's creation and this provision of the woman. She's going to be called woman because she's taken out of man. Again, they're, they're forever connected, okay? Then we come to verse 24. Uh, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So not only is this just a special creation in the beginning, this becomes the foundation for marriage throughout time, right? Throughout man's existence, okay? So let me ask this question. Whose words are these in verse 24? We know ultimately that they're God's words because it's, it's, Scripture is inspired as God's word. But is this a continuation of what Adam's saying? Is this God presenting the woman to Adam and saying, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother or is the, are these the words of Moses, the author of Genesis? What do you think? Okay. Any difference of opinion? It's one of these where we can't, of course, definitively say. But it seems to make the most sense that this is Moses stepping back from the account, the narrator saying... Now, based on God's creation of this, of man and woman, and the unity that they had, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. Well, first of all, because Adam and Eve don't have a 
father and mother to leave, right? So Adam wouldn't be saying this. He has no perspective to say you're leaving father and mother. I don't think God would tell them this because that concept doesn't exist. So I think this is Moses stepping back and saying, therefore, based on this original design, this original creation, a man's to leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they become one flesh, okay? So in what way is a man, let's step back from the narrative and think through this institution of marriage, in what way is a man to leave his parents and hold to his wife when he's married? Yeah. Yes. Differently. Okay. Yeah, 24 says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. What does the NLT say? Okay. Okay, and I like that too because that gives the perspective of Moses saying as he's writing Genesis. It's a narrator's note. This is why. This explains why we have this institution of marriage because of, based on God's creative order. Is that how you kind of take it as well? Yeah, I like that. So, yes. Yep. Yes, as God's words. Yep. Right. And so that's why I think that this is, I think the view is that Jesus is saying these are inspired words of God not necessarily his direct words. And I have that quote in there um, because a lot of people today will say, you know, you, you look at Genesis chapter 2, say this is the foundation of marriage. One man, one woman for life, right? This is the foundation. And even though in later on in Genesis you see a man with multiple wives, this was never um, approved by God. It was never something that, in fact, what you see is the... Uh, disunity, the discompobulation of a family that has multiple wives and they're not getting along and this and that. And of course we know, you know, it's not two men, it's not two women, it's a man and a woman for life. And so Jesus, a lot of people will say, well, Jesus never said anything about homosexuality, right? I only, and which again elevates Jesus' words above the rest of God's words. But yeah, Matthew 19, three through six, Jesus very firmly says, this is what the foundation is. And Anything outside of that is wrong. Jesus never said anything about pedophilia, but does that make pedophilia right? Absolutely not. Jesus stood on the foundation of Genesis. Yeah, Matthew nineteen three through 6. The Pharisees came up to him and tested him by saying, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Okay, so Jesus backs the creation account. He backs the foundation of marriage. And again, I think him saying God said this, I think is God said this through Moses, I think. Uh, I, don't think he's, I don't think God in the garden is speaking these words, if that makes sense. But again, there's nothing dogmatically if you have a, a different view that, you know, you would say that that's incorrect. So let's circle back to this concept of leaving father and mother, holding fast to wife. In what way is a man to leave his father and mother? Does he have to move 100 miles away, 200 miles away, never have contact again? What, what is this idea of leaving and holding fast? Okay. 
Right. And it's a, a difference of priority as well, right? Before a man leaves his father and mother's house, he's to obey them, to, to do what they say, right? But when he leaves and takes this wife, his priority is now his wife. It's not, well, mom and dad told us to do this, so we have to do this. No, they're a unit. They're a family unit. They're to make those decisions. Not that they neglect everything their mom and dad may say as far as, you know, there's an aspect of honoring your father and mother. doesn't mean you're obeying everything they say, but, you know, it doesn't mean you're also dishonoring and not doing what they say either. Um, and so it's this idea of, and, and what you see in Genesis and throughout different cultures even today, when people get married, they don't leave. They don't even leave the household. They have, yeah, their family is there. You see that with Abram and his kids. They're all right there in the same vicinity, kind of living in the same environment. So it's not a leaving physically of, well, you've got to move at least 50 miles away. Now, sometimes that can be healthy today to break that. You know, you, you've probably seen it where a couple comes together and mom and dad don't know how to let go and let them leave and, and cleave, right? And so there's, there's a health in stepping aside. You're on your own in, in, in a sense. You're making those decisions. You're a new family unit. There's got to be some of that separation, okay? Yeah, right. Mm-hmm, right, yep. Yeah, and, that, and we can't look at this institution of marriage without thinking about the ultimate picture of marriage, which is Christ and the church, Christ and his bride. And so that's a great, great relationship, too, is that, man, are we, aren't we thankful that God has given us the beauty of marriage to just be a foreshadowing of the gospel and our relationship with Christ um, and that intimacy we have, uh, our relationship with him. So, yeah, this is all a picture of that as well. Then we come to the last verse, verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So here we see that in this original environment, again, we're gonna, uh, we won't, we won't meet next week or the week after, but when we get back together that second week of January, all this goes south, right? The fall happens, this perfect environment um, of man and woman and, and of the earth is corrupted. But here we see this perfect innocence that there's not shame, there's not guilt, there's not sinful lust taking place. It's just this environment where they're shame-free. They're enjoying that relationship with one another. They're enjoying the blessings of the garden. It speaks to the perfect environment, probably the temperature, right? You can't go about naked if it's a million degrees or 20 degrees, right? So you see kind of this, this idea of this perfect environment and their perfect innocence in this way, okay? So any questions about these verses? Again, we're going to get to chapter 3, and we see everything take a turn for the worse. Um, but any questions about verses 18 through 25? Anything maybe I skipped over, thoughts you had, questions you had? Yeah. Yeah. There's no mention of that, so it's hard to speculate if what's was Hebrew the original language, or you know maybe it's a language that's altogether ceased. Maybe when the Tower of Babel came, that original language is gone. Who knows? Um, so yeah, it's hard to know. But yeah, you imagine as he named the animals, he's probably naming them based on their physical features, maybe their characteristics. So it speaks to his intelligence 
to be able to observe not just their physical features, but maybe the way they move and the way they act. And you imagine, you know, a giraffe was, you know, a long-necked animal, something, you know, whatever he named it. So you imagine that there's got to be a lot of wisdom in naming animals. Um, so kind of interesting. Any other questions or thoughts? I know we're a little early, but we got a lot going on this morning, so we'll just pray and be dismissed. And if you have any questions, let me know. But we will, again, not meet next week because of Christmas Day or New Year's Day. So we'll be back together. I think that's the 8th of January, and we'll dive into Chapter 3 in the fall. Okay? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for just your perfect design, your perfect creation, God, that you have all wisdom in knowing uh, what we need even when we don't, knowing that what Adam needed, that he was lonely. He needed a, uh, a companion. Uh, he needed a helper. And um, God, we thank you for the community that you give us, that we don't have to live in isolation as believers. We can be an encouragement to one another. We thank you for the institution of marriage and how you use that in a way to um, just draw uh, both the husband and the wife to yourself and, and seeing our needs, seeing our weaknesses and how we can complement one another. So God, we thank you for these things. We, we pray that we would stand firm on the foundation of marriage. Um, God, it is not something we get to alter and determine how we want to do it. God, it is something that you have created, the first institution that you made. Um, and so may we stand firm on it in a, a loving and compassionate way, presenting your truth. And um, we just thank you for uh, the wisdom from your word that we can, we can rest upon, we can cling to, uh, we can find our anchor in. And so, God, we just pray we'd meditate upon these things. We pray for our service that you would help everything to go smoothly and that you would just challenge us from your word and, and the uh, insignificance of the shepherds and how, Lord, we may be insignificant, but we can uh, have a relationship with you and proclaim the good news of what you've done. So, God, we lift our service up to you and uh, pray you be magnified in our midst. We give, give you all the praise in Jesus' name.